The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is where we'll be today, and over these last few months, as Aaron, he referred to it briefly here, but over these last few months, we've really given our Bibles a workout, haven't we? We've been uh, jumping around to various passages in this thematic uh, study of authentic discipleship, and we've looked at these three W's. And if you're curious, actually, in November, we'll jump back into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to jump back there, and we will continue our verse-by-verse study of Mark, leading all the way up to Easter, to uh, Jesus' resurrection, and we'll get there um, in Easter Sunday. So if you're curious or you want to get ahead and start studying uh, ahead of me, that's where we'll be in November. But for now, we finish out this series called Authentic, looking at what it means to uh, work for Christ. And last week, one of our elders, Trebes, he kicked off this study, right, of this work portion. And you know what? I would be willing to guess that out of the three W's of uh, one who worships Christ or walks with Christ or works for Christ, that this probably uh, has the most confusion, as to what, 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 is exact, what does it exactly mean to work for Christ? You know, we get what it means to worship. And hopefully in that series, it maybe uh, brought some clarity as uh, we uh, live lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ. Not just the singing, not just the music, but we live lives all throughout the week of worshiping Christ. And in the same way, I think uh, walking for Christ is pretty self-intuitive. If you're a believer, you understand that there is a daily discipline of following the Lord, uh, both individually, but also corporately as a body of believers. But when it comes to working for Christ, the waters may be a little muddied. Are we saved by our works, church? No. The things that you do, God is not like tallying them up and be like, oh, he's a good guy. He's done a lot of of great things. Or she, yep, I want her on my team. We are not saved by our works, nor do we stay saved by our works. This is also, I think, maybe a confusing part for some of us. We think, oh yeah, we are saved by faith. We are saved through grace. But then I have to keep working in order to stay saved, right? No. It's not. We're saved through the finished work of Christ. Our justification, the legal declaration was in Christ. And the power to live, our security to get to the end is in Christ. It is not your works, your good deeds that Christ is keeping you on the team. As if he's just waiting for you to fumble to put you on the bench and then to find somebody else to just kick you off the team altogether. It does not work like that. However, there is an aspect of us working for Christ. As Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we should walk in them. And so an authentic disciple is not idle in their faith. We don't work to keep our faith, but we are not idle in it either. Rather, we recognize that all of us have a purpose, a job, a place, so that we can see others saved and God glorified. That's That's why we work for Christ. And if you were here last week, I hope that you came away with everyone has a gift. Are you a believer here today, this morning? Are you a believer? Have you repented of your sin, believe in Christ? 
for your salvation and in Christ alone, then you have been given a gift. You've been given a gift for a purpose. So say this with me. I am gifted by God. Ready? I'm gifted by God. How's all right? How about this? For his glory. Ready? For his glory and others good. We are gifted. You, if you are a believer today, you have a gift that God has given you for his glory and for the good of others. In Ephesians 4, the focus of our attention now makes it clear what we work for, why we've been gifted. So we've been talking about this. You're probably like, okay, Blair, I get it. I get it. There's confusion. How about we get to the Bible? You ready to get to the Bible? All right, let's get it. Turn in your copy there. Look at Ephesians 4 with me. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16. Listen and follow along now as I read it. It says this, and he, that's speaking of God, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." This is God's word for God's people. You know, what's interesting about the verses that I just read is that in Greek, it's one long sentence. It's one long run-on sentence. Paul's actually pretty uh, famous for doing this. In chapter 1, like verses 3 to 14, something like that, is also a long run-on sentence. And so I guess when uh, you're inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's acceptable in uh, your grammar, right? For the rest of us, run-on sentences, that's unacceptable. Students, if you're writing a paper this week, an essay or something, and you try to like, just have some jumbled on sentence, maybe it's connected by prepositions. Some of you are like, what's he talking about? But a long run-on sentence, um, the excuse won't work like, hey, the apostle Paul did this, I can write it, you can't mark me off. Students probably not going to go over well. Only Paul can do that. But it is one long run-on sentence here. And so it answers this question, what do we work for? As we read it, did it jump out to you? What is it that we work for? We work for unity and maturity. And so we can sum up these verses. We can sum up this long sentence like this. Unity and maturity happen when church leaders equip believers to use their gifts. That's the summary. Unity and maturity happen when church leaders equip believers to use their gifts. Our work has a purpose. Our work for Christ uh, bears a responsibility that all of us have. And this is such a key passage for us to understand, not only uh, for you personally, but also for you to understand even in part how our church functions. This is a, a key passage that governs the way that we do things. As we seek as a church to obey the scriptures, uh, these verses, uh, they, they guide this. 
This is what membership means to us from these passages. This is what what roles that we have, what ministries we are involved in really grow out of our understanding of these verses. And so unity and maturity, they happen as church leaders equip God's people or believers to use their gifts. And so what do we do first? Well, here's your first point. We prepare for ministry. We prepare for ministry. Look at verses 11 and 12 here as we begin. Verses 11 and 12 probably actually need some untangling, huh? That might need some explanation. Likely there's some words here that have been muddied, right? As we read this, he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, equipping their saints here. What saints are we talking about? Is this St. Paul, St. Peter, St. Well, here, let me untangle them a little bit for you. There's four biblical offices that uh, Paul is referring to. And so again, uh, like we've been doing, we're parachuting into uh, some understanding here. We're parachuting into uh, uh, this passage and it needs some understanding rather. But he's talking about the unity of the church. He's just had three chapters of of glorious doctrine. And now he's giving instructions of Paul to this church in Ephesus, instructions on how to live. And he begins chapter four right out of these great truths, these great doctrines to teach us how to live unified. And he begins now to say it's part of church leader's job to make sure and to help and to equip the church to be unified. And so he lists these four biblical offices that have led God's people in various times. And of these four here, yes, there's four, you'll understand. Maybe you're like, I think I see five. Well, I'm going to explain it in just a minute. But of the four, these first two kind of pair together, apostles and prophets. And so it does bear a little bit of explanation. Apostles, prophets, these were foundational offices. Scan your eyes back over to Ephesians 2 verse 20. He's talking about the church and he says this, it's the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so picture a building with me now and as God, the great architect, the great builder has been building uh, God's people. Not a church building, don't get confused here. He's not like actually talking of a physical sticks and bricks building. He's just talking about the body of believers. And he's saying Jesus is the cornerstone. That first stone that was set, that was plumb, that was level, and the rest of the structure is built off of how level, how sturdy that one stone was. That, if just picture that cornerstone, if that's off kilter and you build the house around it, it's only gonna get worse from there. But Jesus and the beauty of his perfection is the cornerstone. And then he had these apostles, these prophets as the foundation on which the church was built. These capital A, these capital P prophets that God had appointed to these offices. To be an apostle is is literally a, a divine messenger. A divine ambassador that that has been dispatched from the king to take the message of the king. Not to invent the message, not to trifle with the message, but ambassadors sent out with the good news of Jesus Christ. And now just for clarity's sake, there is a... um, there is a little a aspect uh, to uh, apostles as well. Like we, if you're a believer today, you are an ambassador for Christ, okay? You are a messenger. You've been sent with the good news. But there was an office, these 12 apostles and some other early church leaders, those that had seen the resurrected Christ that were especially appointed to be the foundation upon which the church was built. Prophets likewise. 
prophets are those that were foretelling the word of God. And so we've talked about this in messages past as we've looked throughout the scriptures that prophets, there were those uh, capital P prophets that were sent by God. And, and we like to think just because of the world that we live in and our fascination with the supernatural of the foretelling aspect of prophetic ministry those that would predict the future, those that would see things in the future and would tell God's people of that. Now, they were never just ones making up these, you know, kind of fanciful stories. They were always in line with the word of God, built upon what was already revealed. And here's now further revelation. But beloved, don't, don't miss the point here. That was just a very small part of a prophet's ministry. Majority of their ministry was really just the forthtelling of the word of God, the exhortation and admonishment, uh, uh, oftentimes including warnings of judgment. Hey, you are not following the Lord here. You are being disobedient. It is time to get your act together, put, leave your sin behind, and follow the Lord. That was the work of the prophets, and it was the prophets and the apostles that were kind of the pioneers. The foundation, the first one's there. It said, this is the way of the Lord. A very specific. Now, I know there are some today that claim to be apostles and prophets. I think as you look through the scriptures, the scriptures would teach us that these were foundational offices that are no longer in place for the church of God today because the gospel is going forward. And this was a very specific office for a very specific time as Christ was now coming or had come and the church was being built and spreading across the world. So we need to understand that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think we need to go deeper into that. And so he's given these guys and he's also given evangelists. You see this evangelists and shepherd teachers or shepherds and teachers, or maybe your scripture says pastors and teachers. And so here are two other offices that God has given. Evangelists is a little bit, maybe more uh, unclear for us. There's not a lot of reference to it in the scriptures. Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, but really what it is, you know, we've kind of had maybe a modern conception of like tent revivalists, evangelists, you know, coming into town, speaking that. But evangelist is really just a gospel teller. Somebody who tells the good news of Jesus Christ, that God is holy and we are not. And our sin has separated us from Jesus Christ, from the holiness of God, because he cannot have anything impure in his presence. And so we are hopeless. We are... <laughs> without ability to please God. And we are without excuse for our sin, but God. Through Christ Jesus made a way. He died the death that we should have died for our sin. And he rose again, defeating death on our behalf, living the perfect life that we could not live by acknowledging that, of confessing our sin and saying, Christ, it is in you my hope. I, I have a strong and perfect plea before the throne of God above, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And if we repent and believe, we can live in newness of life, both here and now, as our, our lives are transformed and we are given the ability by the indwelling Spirit of God to live a different life now. And beloved, we have the hope of heaven, of eternity with the Lord. That is the gospel. Do you love it? 
It's the work of an evangelist, someone who tells the gospel. You can do that too. There's some that, you know, modern day evangelists are much like the missionaries that we send. Those that we send out into foreign lands and even those that we send out here in local lands, even into our schools now. Evangelists are those that, that are going into the schools, much like uh, ministries like Young Life, Kids Club, and others that are in schools, in places that are probably the, where the window to proclaim the gospel is <laughs> quickly shutting. But we are taking the gospel like evangelists. Shepherd teachers then are pastors, are elders. This is communicating. It's one and the same here. There's, uh, as you notice, kind of the construction here. It's, there's no a definite article before the, or the before teachers, which is why we say it's a shepherd teacher. It's communicating the same office here the, uh, in just really two different, th- uh, two different roles of the same person. A pastor communicates the care for God's people. And how do pastors care for God's people? By teaching them the word of God. In much the same way that the Bible uses uh, words interchangeably for elders and pastors, overseers. It's one office of those men who are charged to care for God's people and wear different hats of leadership and oversight and uh, care for the people, discipleship, and the teaching and preaching ministry of the word of God. And so as we prepare for ministry, that's a lot of untangling to do, but I think it was necessary because we have all of these offices. We have to understand, but follow here Paul's train of thought. Come back. We've just explained in uh, verse 11 here, and now what do these church leaders do? God gave, see this, he gave these church leaders to the church or the people of God. Why? Look at verse 12. Is it to do all the work? Now what does it say? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip somebody is, is this idea to come alongside, to complete or to outfit, to perfect them like a good coach. A good coach can't be on the field, right? It's football season. And while a lot of those coaches were former uh, uh, football players, they can't actually get on the field. But what can they do? They can teach techniques throughout the week. They can give the motivation. They can call the right plays. They can make the decisions uh, for the players that are out there. They are equipping them, but they can't run out on the field. Much as maybe some of them want to, and some do, and then they get flagged because you can't go out on the field. But they are constantly saying, not, not this way, but this way. No, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. And they are rallying the, not just the individuals, but the whole team with the technique and the skill and the plays and the motivation necessary to win. And in much the same way, pastors, teachers, church leaders equip believers to follow Christ, uh, both individually and collectively. See, I can't step into your marriage and make decisions for you. I can't, I can't uh, respond uh, to your spouse when they hurt you. I can't, uh, church leaders can't go into uh, your workplace with you. They can't go into the classroom with you. But what they can do is equip you to respond. They can equip you to worship, walk, and work for Christ in in a godly manner. They can provide the encouragement and the motivation, but they cannot go on the field for you. And so church leaders equip the saints, or quite literally, believers, 
Are you a believer in here today? Then you are a saint. A saint here, if there's confusion here, equipping the saints, no, that's not referring to those extraordinary individuals that have, you know, supposedly performed two miracles and have been verified and confirmed and now they are saint so-and-so. This is literally just a set-apart one, a holy one. You, as a believer today, have been set apart, are a saint because of what Christ has done for you. And you've been saved to serve. We say that around here quite often. You equip the saints for the work of ministry. We've been saved to serve for the building up of the body of Christ. See, there's not just this like clergy-consumer divide here, right? There's no clergy-consumer distinction within this church. Leaders work through the equipping of believers and all believers work to build up the body of believers. And so don't miss a key truth here. What are the gifts in this passage? What did God give He gave what? People. See, people are the gifts. Not necessarily the strengths or the attributes or the, the, those skills that we have uh, supernatural uh, to uh, one of us. It's not the skills. It's the gifts are gifted believers. And if you're a Christian in here, God has given to you a gift. Verse 7 says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's a pretty fundamental truth, right? We get so hung up on the skills, we get so hung up on profiles, and maybe you've taken a, a, you know, a spiritual gift inventory, and like now you have your thing, which can be really helpful, and can be really helpful for self-discovery, but it is very foreign to the scriptures. If God has brought you to redemption, then he's done so for a purpose, to be about the work of the ministry, to be about the mission, to be about our vertical mission, to, uh, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission, at which he gave every believer in every church, that we would see the lost saved and the saved matured and the mature multiplied all to God's glory. That's why we exist. And so if you're a small group leader, if you're a ministry team leader, then you must maximize your ministry by equipping those you lead. You must maximize your ministry by equipping those you lead of coming alongside because all of us understand our responsibility. And so equippers ask these two questions. Here's what equippers ask. They ask this, where's the gap and how do we get there? Where's the gap and how do we get there? Where's the gap? Well, the gap between where we are and completing or fulfilling the great commission of where we are going. And so equippers ask, well, what information, what motivation, what resources are missing for us to take the next step? If you're leading your small group, how are you, uh, per, how are you helping your small group take the next step in their discipleship and their love for Christ? And then secondly, what, what teaching, what encouragement, what tools can I come alongside and provide? These are the things we must be asking as we seek to fulfill the great commandments, the great commission, as we want to see one another growing in our faith and our work of ministry is to that end. Our marks of progress then are how we are growing in our unity and our maturity how we are growing in our unity and maturity. And so leaders come alongside and uh, church leaders here now uh, within our church, we come alongside and we equip. 
We equip believers. We really equip one another for the work of the ministry, growing in our unity and maturity. And this work, beloved, never ends. It never ends because unity must always be preserved. Look where he takes us in verse 13 through 16. We must preserve unity and pursue maturity. If you're taking notes here, we must preserve unity and pursue maturity. The work stops, verse 13 says, when we all attain unity and we all attain mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How's that for a sentence, right? How's that for a sentence? And that's a tall order, isn't it? That's a tall order as we seek to attain unity and grow in mature manhood. Why is that such a tall order? Christ is the standard. And so what divides us? What causes, uh, what stunts our growth? Sin. See different things throughout the scripture. There's obstacles to unity. Romans 15, he talks about sin or our selfish individualism. We want it our way. And this stunts our harmony together. Personal disagreements are obstacles to our unity. In Philippians uh, chapter 4, Paul has to call out, even from prison, from a distance, he has to urge two ladies to get along because it is causing disunity and a disruption to gospel progress in the church at Philippi. We need to be quick to forgive, not allowing personal disagreements to fester because it is in that festering that the enemy comes and divides churches. Last, there's theological immaturity. 2 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy also, he says, there are some among you that want to, uh, that are satisfied with ear tickling, that are satisfied with, uh, with falsehood. There are some that, uh, he even calls it the teaching of demons. These things divide us and stunt our growth. But what then unites us? As you are reading through these verses, or as you heard it, what is it that unites us as God's people? I heard one of them, love and, begins with a T, ends in a Ruth. <laughs> truth. It's the truth, and love is what we are united around. It's what we are maturing in as well. We are united in the truth, we are united in our love, and we are maturing in the truth, and we are maturing in our love. See, uh, what he, when he begins this passage, he talks about us being uh, to, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And there is a sense in which all of us are, are united, all believers across the globe for all time are united by the same Spirit. That we are in the family of God. But then because of these obstacles, because of sin and immaturity and personal disagreements and things, now we, as he says in verse 13, we must attain, we must attain to the unity of the faith. And so not only are we just positionally united in Christ, there is now a, a growth in our maturity that we must be about as God's people. We cannot be just, the, as he says, like children in our faith. Children are impressionable. Children are gullible. Children just go along in life like, uh, you know, in doing whatever their parents or others in authority tell them to do. 
But there is a time and a place as we grow in our faith, incrementally, no doubt, that we are maturing in every way, it says, in every way in our faith. We're growing in our understanding of theology. We're growing in our affection and our love and our passion and our zeal for Christ. We're growing in our responsibility and our, and our work for Christ and loving the Lord with all of our strength. And so as we are united in the truth, we are maturing in the truth, and we are united and maturing in the love as well. See, it is the truth, contrary to, you know, maybe cultural slogans, it is the truth that actually unites us. You know, you might hear doctrine divides. I would say immature understanding divides. It is actually a doctrine. It is these understandings of, of who Christ is that is derived from the scriptures, that is articulated through a sound doctrine that we unite around. And let me just, let me just say this as your pastor, <laughs> to be discerning, that not everybody who claims Jesus is an authentic disciple. I don't say that in judgment. I don't say that to throw somebody else under the bus. I don't say that to sound all high and mighty. But you hear people that'll just talk about, you know, oh yeah, me and Jesus, we're good. You know, uh, ministries, oh yeah, we, we love Jesus. You'll see books that, you know, will have an agenda and they'll sprinkle in Christ a little bit or some biblical sounding things and all of a sudden it becomes a bestseller. Or a preacher gets on TV and now all of a sudden has a TV program on TBN or something. And just because they're sold at a Christian bookstore, just because they've been a bestseller, just because they're on TV, does not actually make the message true. And so we must be discerning. As a matter of a fact, if it's probably made it to a bookstore or a bestseller or on TV, it's probably just as it's talking about, it's just another wind of doctrine that is blowing in on the cultural tides and not actually a part of the unchanging, authentic word of God. It has this, here's, a, here's just kind of a filter for you. If you're going to buy a book or something, you're listening to a preacher, and if it has his big smile and face on the cover, if his ministry is named after his or her name, you know, Blair Cushman Ministries, not all of them per se, but that should set off some warning flags for us. Okay? Should set off some warning flags. So we are united in this. We are maturing. We are growing and stretching our minds, not for the sake of a pride. And we are united and maturing in love. Look what he says here in verse 15. So after we're warned about winds of doctrines of human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes, these are good warnings for us. The counter to that then is to speak the truth in love. Remember what love means? Remember our definition that we've said throughout Love is simply you before me. Love is an attitude and thought, mind, and actions, and heart that says you before me. It's, a, it's a actions and affections and thoughts of sacrifice, of putting somebody else before us, even to the point of, like Christ, laying down our life. It's sacrifice more than feeling. And how we communicate that is, is in truth, but in love. What's interesting, and this is something funny in our house, Malachi can uh, verify this, but um, it's interesting in the English language that we don't have truth in a verb form. 
Now, some of you are like, man, we're getting all kinds of grammatical here. Just track with me. I'm going to explain it. Don't worry. But think of it like this. We, have, uh, we say, are you telling the truth or are you lying? Got it? Are you telling the truth or are you lying? You can say, are you telling a lie? But there's no truthing. Are you truthing or lying? So that's some, we've actually made that up in our house. Um, we say, are you truthing? Are you truthing right now or are you lying? Because it's easier. Like, are you telling the truth or are you telling a, a fib here? No, it's truthing. And that's actually what it's here. It's, there's no English equivalent for it. But are you truthing in love? Truthing in love. And this is a mark of our maturity because as we grow, we get this balance better. And I would uh, submit to us as God's people that this is a, a mark of our maturity, of our unified maturity, that we are able to truth in love. Some of us are, and all of us actually probably are bent one way or another. I said, raise your hand if you're a truth person, raise your hand if you're a love person, but we don't need to necessarily do that. But all of us are just bent one way or another, right? Some of us are just like, it's the truth and we're just going to put it out here and I don't care how it comes across or how it's received. And others of us are very, like, we're very concerned about how it comes across. Well, I'm not going to say that because it might offend them a little bit. I'm not going to do that. We're all kind of bent one way or another, but gospel, biblical, united maturity in the Lord is able to speak the truth in love. The way that we communicate things is just as important as what we communicate. We have to get it right, and we have to get it outright as well. And so as that mark, as we are growing in this, these things, speaking the truth in love, communicates a couple things. It communicates, I'm with you in this. I'm committed to your holiness, and I love you a ton. And if you're part of the body of believers, you're part of your small group, you're part of this church, this is a skill that we must learn to do well as a part of our work for Christ. This is why we work. This is why we gather. This is why we come on the Lord's day. This is why we commit to small group. This is why we commit to serving in various ministry teams so that we can get this. So that we can learn to be uh, with one another, communicating not just with our words, but in how we treat one another and things, in love. Love is the glue. Love is the glue that unites us and matures us as a church. See, as we grow up, as we, uh, as we grow up spiritually, this then commitment is not just to our personal growth, but to the whole growth of the body of believers. See, as you say, I'm committed to growing in Christ, I'm committing to walking and worshiping and working, it is all working together. Look how, where he takes us here. We are to grow up in every way, every way in, in our thinking, in our affections, in our work for Christ and the desires of our heart, all of these into whom? Into Christ. And we all work together, the whole body, each of us is a body part all working together for one purpose, to see that Christ is glorified. So Christ as the head means that he's both the boss and the brains. He's both the one that is setting the trajectory and he is the one whom we submit to. And all of us then work together, all of us complete or equip one another. 
And so, you, again, we've said this many times, but I don't want you to leave today forgetting this, that if you're part of redemption, your gift, you being here, it, there's no one in this room that is insignificant. There's no one in this room that is any more important than one another. It is Christ who is the most important and we lock arms, we work together using the various gifts, whether you're at the soundboard, you're making coffee, if you're putting up pipe and drape, if you, even if you're just bringing a smile to church on Sunday, it is all working together from the smile to the sermon for the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus Christ so that we are building itself, we are building ourselves up in love. This is why we work. This is why you're a part. Church, this is what we do. And these things, God, uh, beloved, these things are in contrast to the world around us, aren't they? We live in a world that is increasingly fractured and juvenile. And now the gospel comes in as we are pursuing Christ. And it is urging us to be growing in unity of learning how to get along with people that look different, think different, even smell different than us. And it is teaching us to grow that we are not ever settled with the status quo, with our current level of understanding, of our current level of giving and working for Christ. We are always growing increasingly more united and more mature. And it is the truth and love that unite and mature us as God's people. Therefore, redemption, as we work for Christ, our work for Christ has a vertical purpose. Has a vertical purpose. It's a horizontal playing field, no doubt, as we serve one another, as we seek unity, and as we seek maturity. But the purpose of our work is far from horizontal, merely seeking to be better versions of ourselves. Some other nonsense. Our purpose is vertical as our eyes are on Christ, growing up into him in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ as we individually and as we corporately seek Christ to know him, not just to know about him, but to know him. And as we are doing that together in lockstep, encouraging one another to that, and then the believers, then we are equipped and united and matured in truth and in love. And this, beloved, is what we work for, no matter what our gift is, no matter what our role or responsibility, so that Christ is glorified. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me?